Merry Christmas, Mark. You jolly fellow, how are you? (laughs) Getting jollier with each passing year. Oh, that's nice. That's good. So my question is Christmas-related, of course. Wait, sorry, you have a question for me? I do. A shocking, shocking development. (laughs) I have a question for you. So I guess my question is, Santa Claus, are you pro or con? That that's the end of the question. Am I pro or con Santa Claus? Are you pro or con? I, I did I not put enough question mark in that? <laughs> so my question is, do you like lying to children? Yeah, I'm okay with lying to children. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't uh hmm. Okay. See, that's a ha ha. It's a tough question. Well, it's there's a lot to it. Those who know me know that I don't like to lie. I'm opposed to uh-huh. lying in general in principle. Some will say you know, they'll catch me in a lie and they'll go, hey, you say you never lie. And I have to clarify, no, no, actually it's it's aspirational. You know, it's, <laughs> I would prefer not to. Okay, so then you get to the whole Santa Claus thing, which some people characterize as as a lie. Only bad people do that. How young is our listenership? Do we need to? I don't think we have to worry about spoilers on this one. <laughs> no, probably, yeah. Probably. I can't imagine there's any six-year-olds listening to Recreative. <laughs> no, and if they are, no. they're so precocious, this is not going to hurt them in any way. <laughs> so, okay. I, I guess the short answer is I have no trouble whatsoever with the whole, you know, fable of Santa Claus and imbuing Christmas with that imaginative fantasy magic. I think it's a good thing, you know? I mean, I've discussed this with my daughters. I certainly know how I felt growing up. So yeah, I have no issue with it at all. Okay, that's good. So yeah, so w- what about you, Mark? I actually don't have an answer to this question. I, I realized as I was asking the question, shit, I don't know what I feel about this. I think I'm pro, but uh, I see the cons as well. Because the inevitable disappointment slash betrayal that a child feels no. is probably no. one of the first traumatic things they, well, hopefully the first traumatic thing they experience. So yeah, I'm always worried about that. But um I like the uh, I like the mythology uh, of Santa Claus. I have a lot of fun with it at this time of year, mostly making fun of it. So yeah, I'm pro. I mean, obviously yeah. I'm pro because otherwise I couldn't satirize it. So Jeff Preston, welcome to the podcast. What do you think about all this? <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. Well, I, I just want to be on record that I am one thousand percent pro lying to children. <laughs> uh, I think the more <laughs> the more that we keep them in the dark about the realities. <laughs> Of the world, the better. I think as long everyone. as possible. I wish somebody had kept me in the dark until like now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's better. It's it's way better than the reality that they will uh, be born into when they uh, they emerge from the family cocoon. Okay, so you're uh, you're obviously pro Santa Claus, then, Jeff. Uh, I'm actually anti Santa Claus. I'm pro lie. Oh. I'm anti Santa Claus specifically because if he does not pay his workers. Uh, <laughs> I'm very concerned about the labor conditions in the, in the North Pole. That seems not great. I'm very, very suspicious of his treatment of animals. Uh, I mean, making reindeer fly. Reindeer do not belong in the air. They're, they're not a flying creature. They are land-based. <laughs> they are not adapted for it at all. Yeah. It's unnatural. I don't know. Also, there's like apparently like a, like a U.S. military training regime happening where like they have to bully Rudolph in order to become the leader that he is. Uh, that to me felt like sanctioned bullying. Well, it's just standard. Uh, they tear him down and they build him back up again. One of my favorite memes of this time of year is the the picture of Rudolph from the classic uh, Rankin-Bass short. And the caption is, deviation from the norm will be punished unless it is exploitable. 
Oh my god! <laughs> exactly. My my big concern is the whole injection of radiation into Rudolph to get that you know glowing red oh, that's nose. True. That's yeah. See, there's there's some weird science going on yeah. up there, and uh, I'm sick personally. I'm I'm tired of Sagamon Monkey. <laughs> okay. So in that vein, Jeff, can you tell our us and our listeners who you are and what you do and why you're here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, so uh, so I'm Jeff. Uh, I am. I guess officially my my official title uh, is I'm an associate professor of disability studies uh, at King's University College, which is an affiliate of Westerns. Uh, and my research interest is on representations of disability uh, in popular culture. I'm really interested in how we tell stories about disability, uh, and and more specifically how disability tends to become a useful tool uh, in telling stories and how we tend to objectify uh, disability as opposed to subjectify, I suppose, or uh, embody disability within media. So that's sort of part of me. And then the other side of me is that I also uh, podcast. Uh, And so I have a podcast called Invalid Culture, uh, which is looking at the worst representations of disability that we can find on the internet. And you're a creative guy generally. I mean, you had a webcomic for a while and you've been involved with yeah. theater. You, you did a presentation, I think, yesterday at the Art Lab on campus. Can you tell us what that was yeah. about? Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like to, I think it's, it's only fair that if I'm going to critique media, uh, that I should also probably try to produce it. Uh, so as you said, I did a webcomic. Hmm. Uh, Crips the web comic, uh, which is about disability, about two teenagers with disability. Wait, what was um, the name of I it? I did uh, Crips a web comic, Crips oh. with a Z. If you want to see it, it is still online. You can okay, still find it. So I did that, and then uh, I had a TV show on Rogers uh, called London Undone, uh, which was a satirical news program about London. We survived one season. We did not get sued, <laughs> although there were a few. Close calls. Um, so that was good. So that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, it was it was a real joy to do something that kind of wasn't disability related. Uh, it was just about London, about how this is a silly, silly city that we live in. And then yesterday, I was drawn into a it's actually an aerial piece performed by an aerialist here in London named Aaron Clark as a disabled performer who has put together this thing called Visual Pleasure, uh, in which she has choreographed an aerial routine really intense aerial routine. And I am delivering a lecture about Laura oh Mulvey uh, over top of the aerial. And so rather than having an aerial program where typically you'd have like music, mm-hmm. for instance, you instead get this like droning sort of white male voice uh, <laughs> talking about uh, the male gaze and Laura Mulvey as this, uh, as this uh, female performer is is performing an, an aerial routine. Are there any uh, reindeer so in this aerial routine? <laughs> no, there are not. Strictly forbidden. <laughs> no animals were harmed uh, in the making of visual pleasure. So that's so good. cool. And you have also done a uh, TED talk. I saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was invited to do a TED talk at Western, and being the person that I am, I decided to take the piss, and <laughs> so I did a TED talk stating that I had created an institute to cure normalcy. <laughs> Uh, and, and I was running this lab and I was working on finding a cure uh, for normalcy. I was, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just want to say it was very funny. Oh, thank you. I'm glad. Not everyone got it. Two people tried to apply to be research assistants at my lab. <laughs> well, that, that's incredible because I mean, like you had video takes of people who have either recovered from or are suffering from normalcy 
which was yeah. clearly over the top. <laughs> and, uh, yes, yes. I thought I, I thought I had really drawn it out, and apparently, uh, apparently, I had not. I, so, I mean, it led to this awkward moment after where I wondered, well, maybe I should. Maybe like, how how long can I take this con if I have an RA? You know, maybe NSERC would fund me. Uh, <laughs> maybe I maybe I open up the lab and I start experimenting on people. I don't know. Uh, maybe that's what I should be doing. Really, the the whole the whole play of the talk was thinking about how we pathologize disability instinctively. Uh, we don't even we don't even think about it, right? We see uh, we see a wheelchair or we see a walking stick or a cane or any of the other signs of disability and amputation, prosthetic leg. And we immediately sort of wrap it in this world of medicalization and assume that it is a problem that needs to be fixed. Hmm. And something that I've thought a lot about as I've grown up, I was born and raised uh, with a disability diagnosed at birth, is the way that my disability in some ways, I think, has freed me from many of the expectations of normalcy uh, in, in some really great ways, I would say, um, because I never got to qualify for normal. Uh, from day one, I wasn't deemed uh, eligible to be normal, which I think for some, maybe that would be really upsetting. But for me, it was extremely freeing. Uh, it meant that I didn't need to necessarily conform to the expectations of society in the same way that necessarily everyone else feels compelled to for some reason. Uh, and so then I thought thinking about it, that if we if we structure a world in which we take non-disabled people, we put them into medical coats, and then we put them into clinics, and then we tell them that they will use their able-bodied minds in order to fix the disabled people that roll through their clinics. What might it look like if we flipped that narrative? Hmm. What would it look like if we had disabled people fixing the people who are suffering from normalcy, uh, who are clinging <laughs> to this understanding or this, this misperception that they themselves are normal and that they, there is a normalcy that they should be striving toward or perhaps that, uh, that they are compelled to be that maybe we actually are the ones that should be the doctors fixing people. What I loved so much about that, Jeff, is that I just, I find that I, I really don't like the word normal. And I've, I think yeah. you are probably the person who set me on that journey to understanding that is a really pointless word because there is no normal. Yeah, it's it's a silly word. It's a very silly word. Yeah. There is no normal. Exactly. Everyone's yeah. the whole concept of normal. It, it is. Yeah. There's everyone has yeah. their, own unique existence and it's unique to every single person so there's how many billion of us now and there's no normal amongst any of them so do you remember a time jeff because you were saying that you, you that you were freed from the whole concept of of normalcy when, when yeah. did that dawn on you like when when did you take that position pretty early on like really early on i would say um, I mean, I, I remember vividly going to uh, junior kindergarten and having this like weird awakening uh, that I was the only one in the room with a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was like, oh, no, I'm the only one. I thought I just sort of assumed everyone uh, or that most people there would be. I mean, I have an older sister, so I knew that not everyone used wheelchairs. But I sort of assumed, I mean, 50% of the children in my household were using wheelchairs. I thought maybe the ratios would be a little better than <laughs> uh, one to 30. I, I remember that like being the first thing that, that clicked in. And, and even more so the way that the students in the classroom saw me as different. Uh, and that, I think, was really illuminating to me where I was like, 
wait, why why am I the weird one here? Why am I the different one here? Like, I'm not different. I'm just me. I'm how I've always been. Mm-hmm. This is just sort of who I am. And so I think there was a bit of a disjuncture there, not necessarily in like a bullying sort of way, but in a, they noticed I was different, which made me notice that I was different. But I also have always been a bit of an oppositional, defiant kind of little dude. Uh, and so I think that, you know, people are like, oh, like, don't you wish you could walk? And I'm like, nah, I've never really wanted to walk. It looks terrible. Uh, I way prefer my wheelchair. Um, there doesn't seem to be much, aside from accessing places with stairs, uh, there doesn't seem to be any benefit to it. Uh, to me, <laughs> labor intensive. Um, I mean, you guys look like you're dying uh, when you're walking across campus. Uh, I don't get tired. It's, well, to be fair, it is just controlled falling. That's exactly, <laughs> right, exactly what walking is. You know, <laughs> I just glide, yeah. you know, it's, it's totally graceful. And so I think that, that that has always been sort of a part of me as well. And so things like, you know, you get into puberty and you start thinking about like beauty standards and what is an attractive body, what's an unattractive body. I knew right away that I was not an attractive body, or at least not in a conventional sense. And that, you know, for some that can be really upsetting and can be really worrisome. But for me, I think it brought my attention to just how completely shallow and vain beauty standards are uh, and how this sort of construction of what constitutes beauty and how beauty is tied to value was just completely false. It was made up. Uh, It was Santa Claus, (laughs) Uh, Santa Claus for puberty. Um, I mean, I think, I think one of the interesting things about being born with a disability is that you both get a real sense of the, the inability to change things from a very young, young age, right? Like it's like, this is, my reality, it'll always be my reality. And there are things in this world that do not change. Um, like that, that you, you learn that lesson really quick when you're born with a disability. But you also develop this other sense of like the weird flexibility and permeability of the world uh, and your body, right? That, you know, how my body works today is not how my body will work tomorrow or a month from now or a year from now. And so I also just don't get very hung up on on the ways that my body changes or you know i not i don't really fear aging uh for instance in the same way necessarily as others because you know i never i didn't have a like peak athletic jeff moment when i was bench pressing huge weights <laughs> and you know <laughs> jamming steroids in my butt like yeah, i never had that phase uh, but well, neither did so I. Yeah. I never yeah. lost yeah. it either you know and so yeah. um so you know, there's there isn't that like loss of physical ability in the same way, and so you don't you don't mourn the change so much as understand that bodies are in flux, minds are in flux always, and that's also a reality. So you've not only learned to play the cards that you're dealt, you've learned that that hand will change with every every deal. It can, which yeah. some people never learn. I mean, a, a lot of people never learn. It's a hugely important yeah. lesson. Because I think, and, and not to get too like utilitarian about it, but it it breeds not just the desire, but also the ability to adapt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think for a lot of people with disabilities, that's sort of the thing you hear a lot, is that the real story of disability is the story of adaptability. Hmm. Uh, it's the story of being able to bend the world around you uh, to fit your needs and about the real pain and, and angst and injustice of when the world refuses to bend, uh, when the, the world refuses to change. Uh, and that, that is perhaps the real 
disabling experience, uh, not necessarily the, the change in the genetic code that I experienced, but rather the inability for us to change the building code yeah. uh, in the world around us. Maybe that's the more disabling factor. Yeah, or getting people to add alt, alt text to their images as a, sorry. Yeah, as, yeah. As web or or audio description yeah. on yeah. videos, right? Yeah. yeah. I think that leads us to the piece that you wanted to talk about, right? Doesn't it? I, th- I think you yes. did that kind of masterfully. <laughs> but one quick observation just before we do that. So obviously humor has been, it appears to me, it's a big part of your life and a, and a big part of your character and, uh, and how you uh, deal with things. And I imagine that has something to do with the choice that you're about to talk about. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm a deeply silly person. <laughs> um, you know, I think about that line from Succession, right? When, uh, you know, Roy's are talking and the father says, you know, you are deeply unserious people. Uh, and I, I just want someone to say that to me because <laughs> uh, I am a deeply unserious person. Uh, and so I thought, you know, when, when you reached out and asked me to be on the pod, uh, I thought that I should probably do a crossover episode uh, and subject you uh, to a film that I have subjected others to uh, on Invalid Culture, which is, of course, the film Christmas Evil. <laughs> and I I had never seen this movie before in my life, believe it or not. No, I'd never heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. Very few have. It's weird, though, because it <laughs> does have a cult following, this movie. It does, which is a weird thing about mm. this film. One of the many can, weird things can about Can you this describe film. the film for our listeners and Joe? <laughs> and then we'll get into yeah. it. Yeah, sure. So I, I have a synopsis, which will oh, be yeah, great. Yeah, my synopsis perfect. of yeah. this film. Sure. Okay, so here, here's a synopsis of Christmas Evil. Christmas Evil focuses on the life of Harry Stadlin, a man traumatized as a child by the sight of his mother getting frisky with St. Nick. Making Freud proud, this traumatic event leads to a lifelong obsession with Santa Claus and all things Christmas, until, 33 years after the trauma, the lines between Harry and Santa begin to blur. Troubles at his toy factory where he works and the negative body hygiene of local bad boy Moss Garcia eventually pushes Harry over the edge. Those who stand against the Christmas will die. (laughs) Dressed as Santa, Harry goes on part donating toys to disabled kids slash part murder rampage, punishing those who don't want to hear the, quote, tune he is trying to play, whatever that means. Eventually, he confronts his financially successful repo man brother, Philip, and for denying his traumatic observations, they have a tussle, a fight, he punches Philip, loads his Santa van up, and flies off into the cold night, escaping a torch-wielding mob that is trying to hunt him. That's actually pretty good synopsis. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's actually... (laughs) Pretty much what ha- there's a lot more happening in that movie, though. I'll tell you right now. <laughs> huh. There is so much yeah. happening. And I think it's also important to note, famously, this movie has been identified by John Waters as the best Christmas movie ever made. Wow. That is so- that okay, that's that's amazing to hear that. But it kind of makes sense. Huh. He genuinely seems to believe it. He said it more than once. And he genuinely loves this movie. So he is not tongue-in-cheek. He's He genuinely thinks this is an incredible piece of art. Okay, so Mark, you have okay, seen it. I, can I give you my experience of this movie? My first thought was, why does Jeff hate me? 
what? <laughs> what? I don't understand. I thought I thought we were friends. <laughs> and then as as I got into the movie, I was strangely compelled by this movie. But I I think yep. it's mostly because of the guy playing Harry, the lead, Brandon McGart. And then he was in uh, Life According to the Dark. That was sort of his big yeah. kind of fame. It should be this because it's actually it's a pretty riveting performance. I was watching it going, yeah. this guy doesn't know what movie he's in. He has no idea what movie he's no. in. He's delivering a nuanced and very deep, connected performance. And that's essentially what carried me through the movie, was watching this guy, because he's like, it's it's hard not to watch it just because of how good his performance is. Wow. The rest of okay. the movie, though, is a freaking disaster. The, the script is the script is terrible. Uh, there's some actually some really well known actors in this movie, like Hector uh, from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Hector Salamanca is in it. Yeah. His that actor is in it. Yeah. There's a bunch of Canadian actors. Yeah, Jeffrey Deman. Like there's some actually some pretty well known character actors from the 80s in this. Wow. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a yeah. mess though. The whole thing is just a big giant mess in terms of the. Yep. The story structure, the motivations are frankly insane. I mean, none of it makes sense. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> nope. The the relationship, no, it the relationship not. between the brothers, Philip and Frank, is just like it doesn't make sense at the end. Yeah. No. So my resistance to watching it is because I I, I don't typically like horror movies. I and I especially don't like uh, slasher movies. But uh, mm-hmm, so sure. tell me, what is the case then for, for Jeff for watching this movie? So, well, this is the problem. As an unserious person <laughs> uh, and perhaps a broken person, <laughs> I love crap movies. COVID <laughs> has damaged me because I spent most of it not watching legitimate theater and art, but I was in there trolling the absolute bowels of the streaming platforms to find the weirdest stuff I could find. I watched a lot of Christian films uh, during COVID (laughs) because they are the most bizarre things I've ever encountered, (laughs) Uh, like deeply strange. And uh, and so that's actually where this sort of idea of invalid culture came out out of is, why don't we watch the weird stuff? Like, you know, everybody talks about Rain Man or, you know, the, t- the typical disability of Forrest Gump, you know, whatever. Let's not talk about the Oscar bait. Let's talk about the stuff off the beaten path where somebody was drawn to disability for a reason that probably had nothing to do with awards, but for some reason they had a story to tell and disability was going to be a part of it. And I thought that was a really interesting way to kind of look at it. And I think that Christmas Evil gives us a really interesting glimpse into this sort of 1980s, the idea of the madman, the idea of the sort of the going postal, you know, the the aggrieved worker who snaps and goes on a rampage. Hmm. Um, All of those sort of like early sort of that concept, I think, is there. So like Michael Douglas and falling down. Precisely. That's a perfect comparison, except with toys and weird sexual confusion. Um. <laughs> well, that's what that's that's one of the things that's so hard about the movie, though, is because his rampage really isn't a rampage, in the sense that he, yeah, he, he, no, he obviously has he 
I don't want to spoil the movie for anyone, so I'm not going to do that because I'm assuming most people haven't seen this movie, even though it's like whatever it is, 43 years old. <laughs> Thankfully. But there are some scenes where it's like, yeah, he's not really on a rampage at this point. He's still just, uh, in in some case, I would say he's not doing second degree murder. He's doing first degree murder. Like the guy that sends him over the edge, he's going to die. And that might be the yeah. point of the whole movie is that the guy who really did him the most wrong yeah. is going to die. And that's not a rampage. And the people at work, he doesn't kill because he doesn't have the opportunity to kill them. Well, know? not all of them. Yeah. 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 And like, there's very clearly, like, you could see how this director, writer, um, Lewis Jackson, you could see how he clearly wanted to make like a commentary on like the commercialization mm-hmm. of Christmas, uh, which is, of course, a very generic thing to do. Um, and so that's really the target, right? So it's like the corporate owners, the like the Wall Street guys coming out of church, the people that don't like allow him to be Santa. These are the people who are going to have to pay, right? Uh, the people that are sort of breaking this innocence. But then he's also presented as this kind of out of control madman. Like, is he going to kill his brother? Is he going to kill his brother's family? Is he going to kill Moss Garcia? Uh, yeah, this yeah. like degenerate street child who lives next to him. So that's where some of the tension comes in in the movie because yeah. you don't know what he's going to do. Yeah. There's also, you got to realize too, because it's a bad movie, there's almost like two movies mm-hmm. here. Like there's sort of like the pre-movie, which is like his childhood and then working at, I did a schlub at the toy factory. And then he goes into this like fugue state and then it's like start the second movie. And so then a lot of things that happen at the beginning just are never addressed again. They don't come back up. It's just completely dropped huh. because now we're on to the massacre. And so, so it needed well, a good and, story editor. And I would draft. say, I, I mean, I'm not a fan of slasher movie movies either, but there wasn't enough blood like to really qualify as a slasher movie. It yes. really isn't a slasher movie. Like a few people get murdered and it's kind of fake looking and unbelievable. Like one guy gets killed with a, Christmas ornament, which doesn't seem likely. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a yeah. pretty, pretty good shot right there in the eye. And then, and then the tension, <laughs> but the tension really is like he keeps vacillating wildly between this guy who's killing people and Santa Claus. He's actually Santa Claus. He, he, yes. st- he steals toys from all of the bad boys and girls under their trees. He breaks into the houses, steals the toys, and then gives them to an orphanage. In the same night. Yeah. It's all mm. in the same night. Yeah. It's, it's, it's madness. All happening. The movie yeah. is... And then a mob yeah, tries a mob, to get him. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, he gets <laughs> caught in the street, and yeah, a mob tries to get him. Classic New York. <laughs> and was, was the director the writer? You said it was Lewis... Uh... Yeah, Lewis Jackson. Lewis... I think 90th century wrote it and directed it. And, but it's, yeah. it also seemed... Yeah. And as you... Sorry, I was going to ask you, do you know, like, it seemed to me they had, like, there was some money behind this movie, because... You know, like, there was a little bit. It wasn't a huge okay. budget, but they stretched it. They did a good job because in it a big way, like pretty good production values. To be honest, yeah. And the other weird part about this story is that so this to me felt like the type of movie that somebody makes when they're trying to basically put together a sizzle reel that they'll then parlay into mm-hmm. something bigger. Hmm. Because I think, like, I think there's some technical ability here. And there is some conceptual ability mm-hmm. here. And it just didn't all come together necessarily. Right. Um, so he wasn't but Sam Raimi. <laughs> no. And so he ended up like, he didn't really do anything else after this, though. 
is the weird thing. He went on to do a bunch of like art house, like porn, essentially. Um, that's like almost impossible to find. Like you can't get it. It like doesn't exist. Like, well, like some people have it, obviously, but like you're not gonna go on Amazon and and find a, like the Lewis Jackson collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so kind of faded into obscurity a little bit uh, after this, which is also strange. Uh, strange well, or maybe not things. because you're. You're not really convincing not. me that this is a great movie, you know. So no. other people may have looked at it and so taken a hard pass. Jeff, can you account for why this has got a cult following? Like that's the part for me that was a real surprise because I was like, I, I understand why there's some value to the movie, but but um, if, if nothing else, for his performance, for Brandon McGart's performance, it's it's actually. So it's, it shows you how an actor can like rise above a script in a sense. But like, why is it a cult? Why does it have a cult following? It's weird. So I think it was one of the movies that got swept up in the UK and their like their censorship of films in the early eighties. I'm pretty sure. Um, Oh, so it had that stamp on it. So people are like, oh, it's got uh, you know, if it's been censored, it's like oh, it's DeviantArt. Okay, got it. Hmm. Yeah, I think that was it. But now that I'm looking that up, I don't see that on the wikipedia page which you would i mean i kind of took to it, it like ice pirates or a movie like that where it's like it's just so bad that you go okay you got to watch that I think movie that's part it's so of bad it. you got to <laughs> watch it i think that's part yeah, of the, it i think the badness of it is part of the sort of cult interest i think the like it's the taboo mm-hmm. of it in some ways as well right it's this like weird mix of like sex violence christmas and mental illness yeah, yeah. Um, wow. that you just don't get anymore. You know, <laughs> when was the last time you had that mixed together in a film? I regret to say you have completely failed to sell me <laughs> on this movie. <laughs> I will I'll probably not be watching this movie. Let me ask you then. I mean, I, I assume this is not your favorite Christmas movie. Do you have a favorite Christmas movie? Um, I mean, I, it's probably Die Hard. Me too. Um, I would say interesting. Okay. Probably Die Hard would be my favorite Christmas movie. Hundred percent. Um, um, number one, <laughs> Alan Rickman is incredible yeah. in that film. Like just unbelievable. He plays two nationalities um, in the film. One kind of better than the other. I think there is like there is some incredible filmmaking stuff happening in that film really subtle ways that they tell you about the characters without telling you anything. I mean, like when Alan Rickman, that scene, if you watch the scene of Alan Rickman entering um, Yakutomi Tower, I think so, what yeah. it's called? Yakutomi Plaza, Plaza something, something like that, that. Yeah. As he's walking into the plaza, that scene of him walking in, you understand everything about the dynamics of this mob of people. Like you understand all of the dynamics of this gang as they're entering and like barely any words are, are said. Um, it's all like body acting and camera angles and just facial expressions. And like the way that they dominate the scene, the way that Alan Rickman dominates that scene tells you everything you need to know about that character. And I think that a lot of people go into Die Hard thinking this is just like a crappy action movie, which it is, but there also are some like very clever things that are happening. Well, I would say um, that it's like, a, it's certainly an action movie, but it's not a crappy action movie. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of my favorite yeah. directors, John McTurnan, yep. who just knows what he's really? doing. He's a craftsman. Yeah. And he, and you know, yeah. with doctors, I, 
completely agree. Not my favorite Christmas movie, so but what's your definitely favorite Christmas a movie I love. Movie, Joe? It's a little cliche, but I, I would have to say It's a Wonderful Life. It has grown oh, on classic. me so much uh, over the years, you know, watching it from a kid. And it's one of those movies that I can, can and have watched over and over again. And, uh, and it just gets me emotionally. And I also think it's a masterful piece of writing and directing and, and acting. Yeah, I can't complain with that. I, I think yeah. I, I give honorable mention to yeah. A Christmas Story as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a yeah close. It's, it's a you know, three in the top, well-made movie. Three. The guy who yeah. wrote the short story is narrating it, and his narration is perfect. Like it's it's so good, it's so great. Yeah. Oh my god, I shot my eye out. <laughs> <laughs> I I guess I also have to mention Elf, just because I <laughs> yeah, again I enjoy. That performance so much, like almost anything else. Actually, I really like James Caan too. But I mean, Will Ferrell's performance in that is just so perfect. It's obvious that John yeah. Favreau yeah. knew what he was doing when he wrote the script. But I'm really glad that Will Ferrell ended up doing that role. It feels like the most authentic Will Ferrell in some ways. Like that feels like the most authentic to like him. I feel than maybe many of his other roles. Like often his other roles, he has like a bit of like mm-hmm. a darkness to him. And I don't get the sense that that's Will Ferrell in real life. I, I kind of feel like it might be this. Uh, it yeah, might be I, I actually, I would have to meet the man to have any understanding. But yeah, I think you're right. I mean, <laughs> it's it's so light and perfect. I mean, if you think back to Saturday Night Live when he was, you know, starting out and his role as the cheerleader with Sherry O'Terry, again, that seems like him, right? Just yeah. super happy, enthusiastic, totally. supportive, and that's who the guy is, yeah. Okay, so a little segue then, as we uh, come into the closing moments of our of our Christmas special podcast. Which it wasn't, sp- <laughs> it wasn't meant to be, but this is how it turned out. Well, and I think it's yeah, terrific, it's and I, I'm, I'm actually so glad, Jeff, that you suggested. Uh, it was a brilliant <laughs> choice. Maybe yeah, not the greatest really movie, yeah. but, but uh, so the whole notion of, um, of Christmas itself, what, what do you guys think of Christmas? Ooh, that's a tough one. I sometimes call it Christmas carnage because for me, it's always been kind of this weird time, which I know I'm supposed to feel all these things, but I don't necessarily feel them. Yeah, I feel like I'm being manipulated pretty hard around this time of year by everybody. <laughs> and I've kind of learned to resent <laughs> it a little bit. And I'm, I've, let it, I've let, mostly let that go now. And I kind of enjoy it for what it is. So that's that's hmm. why it's a hard. Question. Well, for my part, I I apologize for manipulating. <laughs> um, Jeff, what about you? Um, yeah, I I love Christmas, but but oh well, I don't. I'm not going to say that I'm Christmas evil guy by any means. But my Christmas, like the ideal Christmas in in my in my life, is the quiet Christmas with the family, hanging out, playing games, watching movies, being away from it all. Right? It's not really about the presents for me. It's really about the the dinners and the chatting and the hanging out. And my family was always, we were sort of on the quiet side uh, for Christmas. It was usually, you know, just me and my folks, my sister and uh, family friends, far as will come over. And it was just sort of a nice, fun time. Uh, and my, my partner, uh, her side, uh, they're a bunch of Catalans. And uh, and Catalans, they know how to celebrate Christmas. Huh. So it's, uh, it's not quite the, the, the glitz and glam uh, that you might see in in a movie, it's it's definitely more of that kind of family hanging out and uh, whacking a log <laughs> with a stick 
uh, to make it without presents, which is the greatest tradition uh, I think that I've ever I've ever met. So, yeah, I'm I'm very pro Christmas, but probably not in the way that our corporate overlords would would prefer mm-hmm. me to be. Well done. Yeah, I I have to say I like Christmas. I've got lots of great memories of Christmas, and I sometimes I I like to go nowhere, do nothing, and see no one, and have that kind of Christmas. Uh, this Christmas. We'll be going to Prince Edward Island and uh, hanging out with my family. The first time, uh, I think, in like 30 years that I that all of us will be together, like extended family for Christmas. So that's, that's very cool. That's that will be, be fun. We'll all sit down and we'll watch Evil, Christmas Evil together. <laughs> no, don't do that. And, don't uh, do that. Yeah. No, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Book, book the yeah, therapist yeah. <laughs> so that the therapist arrives immediately yeah. afterwards. And then you can unpack Just it as a family. have a place for everyone to go when they leave the movie. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think, uh, I don't think we'll be watching that movie, but Jeff, any final thoughts on, uh, on your choice for, for today's episode? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons why I like people to watch this film, uh, is that I think it, it is doing really badly what a lot of our media does when we tell stories about disability, um, which is that we don't see disabled people as people at all. Um, but rather we take these diagnoses and we use them as a justification to get the story where we want it to go. This is what uh, Mitchell and Snyder call narrative prosthesis, uh, or the way that uh, disability is used as a like a crutch to prop up story development or to prop up the, the plot of the film. Uh, and so I think we can actually learn a lot about, we can learn a lot about how we tell stories about disability by watching the truly bad representations because the bad ones are doing the same thing as the big budget Hollywood Oscar bait movies. They're just not doing it as well. (laughs) And so I think when you're watching things like Christmas Evil, you can start to see the absurdity of the stories that we tell, um, the Uh. the truly nonsense uh, that exists in the way that we tell stories about disability. And so then when you're watching a really good movie, quote unquote, uh, something that will probably win an Oscar someday, uh, you're watching it and you say, Wow, this is kind of like that plot of Christmas Evil. <laughs> the, the alarm bells would start to go off, right? You're like, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. Yeah, I need to think yeah, critically. About, yeah. So it yeah. sounds like our listeners <laughs> wow. should be yeah, listening to your exactly. podcast too to inoculate themselves. Maybe, or if you want to recommend a terrible movie to someone, come and check out any of the movies okay. that we've done because they are. Chris, I will just say, just to put it into context, Christmas Evil is one of the best movies we've done so far on wow. the podcast. By like a lot. Uh, well, not a lot. Mac and me was pretty good. But like top two, no questions asked. Okay, let's take a second um, here and just to, so explain to us the, the premise of your podcast. And yeah, because we want so to what get, you guys do. We want to promote yeah, that for sure. For sure. Yeah. So the premise of Invalid Culture is uh, we wanted to turn the camera lens back on culture itself uh, and to say, what if we have disabled people, disabled scholars, analyzing the truly awful representations of disability that we can find. And so one of our big rules is we're not going to analyze big movies. We're not going to analyze movies that you've probably heard of. We're going to do the weird stuff, the stuff that you're going to find at the bottom of Tubi, (laughs) the stuff you're going to find at the dollar stare DVD bin. We're going to find the weird stuff. And we're going to dig into it because what we're finding is the more of these truly awful films we watch, the more we realize that these movies are simply replicating the tropes 
and the story, the archetype that they're seeing in popular films, in the movies that quote unquote work. And so then we have to wonder, well, what is the artifice that we're building of disability? What is the simulacra of disability that is being constructed uh, in our cultural content? And I think that the bad movies can actually help us get access to that, uh, to help us to see under uh, the the polish of a very good actor huh. uh, or a very talented scriptwriter that might be feeding us a story of disability that has a lot more to do with those who don't see themselves as disabled, as opposed to actually telling an authentic story about life with a disability. Mark, it sounds like people should be listening to that podcast instead of this. No, they one. should listen to both, obviously. Right. Yeah, oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah, right. should. Yeah. Both. This is the palate yeah, yeah. cleanse. You oh. <laughs> listen to ours, yeah. you cry yeah. for a bit, and then you listen to this to get hope. Yeah, exactly. Because it, it'll be all okay. inspiration yeah. and stuff. So, so, where can people find your podcast, Jeff? So you can find us at invalidculture.com uh, or wherever you find cool. your podcasts. All right. So, Mark, any final thoughts from from you on what No, we I just want to thank Jeff for coming on and and forcing me to watch that horrible movie because I did learn things. I learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you, Jeff, and uh, and Merry Christmas to you both. Merry Christmas. Cheers. Creative is produced by Mark Rayner and Joe Mahoney. Technical production and music by Joe Mahoney. Web design by Mark Rayner. Show notes and all episodes are available at recreative.ca. That's re-creative.ca. Drop us a line at joemahoney at donovanstreetpress.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. <laughs>